everybody, welcome back. We're here today for another episode of Atypical Parenting. I'm Dawn Tree, and we have a great guest today. Her name is Jan Stewart, and she is an autism advocate and an author living in Toronto, Canada. Jan, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? No, I'd be delighted to, Dawn. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I am indeed in Toronto, and I am a parent of two now-grown children who have multiple complex mental health and neurodevelopmental disorders. My son, Andrew, has autism, Tourette syndrome, obsessive-compulsive disorder, ADHD, and learning disabilities, and his younger sister, Ainsley, also has Tourette syndrome, ADHD, and learning disabilities, along with severe mood and anxiety disorders. Lucky us. <laughs> but it, and it's been quite a harrowing journey with lots of heartbreak, but also lots of joy, lots of funny times. And I go on a number of podcasts and make speeches across North America as an ambassador of hope and perseverance and encouragement. That's really what I'm here for, and I know that Dawn is why you're here. And that's why I just wrote my book that just came out, Hold On Tight, A Parent's Journey, Raising Children with Mental Illness, that we can talk about. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Why don't I open with a just a funny story that happened two days ago with my son, Andrew. I was talking to a group of parents uh, who all have children with autism. And he was participating in the speech, and he's very chatty. He lacks abstract thinking capabilities and can't maintain eye contact, but he still is a charmer. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking about a very serious topic of make a financial plan. It's very important. You may not know your, the capabilities of your child later as an adult, so you can revisit and update it, and I'm going on and on. And obviously, this is far beyond Andrew's capacity to understand, and he got bored. So with a combination of his autism and his ADHD and his impulsivity and everything else, he turned to the group and just blurted out, do you know the difference between my mother and a terrorist? <laughs> you can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> and it was just what the audience needed. They reacted just to you have everyone burst into laughter, started clapping, warmed up everything, cut the heavy topic, and on we went. Well, that's hysterical. That's nice he goes to the events with you. Not all of them. Um, uh, on the, a number of the autism events he attends, and my daughter attends a number of other ones, and then many I do by myself. Nice. Good. I, you're also the uh, chair of a large organization, is that right? Yes. I currently... So I've been involved in neurodiversity advocacy and governance for 25 years. Uh, and I've sat on about seven different boards and advisory councils in both Canada and the United States. I'm originally from New York City, married a Canadian and came up. So I currently chair a wonderful organization called Carrie's Place Autism Services. It is the largest autism services provider in Canada. It has over 1,200 staff. Um, it serves over 800 families and individuals with autism every year, and we have the full suite of residential and community services. It, it's great. Wow. I also have been vice chair in the past of Canada's leading psychiatric hospital, which a number of listeners may know, CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is one of four global centers of excellence. 
And I've sat in the United States on Massachusetts General Hospital's Department of Neuropsychopharmacology, I can hardly say that word, <laughs> Parent Advisory Council, and I currently am a consultant to the Tourette Association of America's Education Advisory Board. Wow, you are a busy lady. This is my passion and my mission. So I would love to hear more about your book. Yes, um, I had a career while the kids were growing up on, well, started on Wall Street and then transferred to Canada's equivalent, which is called Bay Street at a very senior level and high pressure. And I think part of the reason I thrived, to be frank, was that it separated me from the challenges at home. And actually, even though it was a pressure cooker, it gave me respite. So I had that. I had the governance and advocacy activities that I thought were very important. But when I finally retired a year and a half ago, from all those advocacy activities, so many parents have reached out through the years for help. These are both young parents and parents of older children who are preparing for the future and are frightened. And I so remember being in the same position, feeling isolated, bereft. What do I do? Where do I go? And so I said, I'm going to pay it forward and write it down. And I've written Hold On Tight, not only to tell our story, and it really is brutally honest, it holds nothing back, but equally to celebrate successes. And I do gift readers with key insights and life lessons to help ease the journey. That's amazing. How do your children feel about you writing about them in the book? It's an excellent question, and my husband. Um, and I write about this, actually, in Hold On Tight. I broached the topic with them one family dinner on a Sunday evening, and they all said, you've got to write it. But I said, what I'm going to do is finish a first draft and share it with each of you, because I don't want to publish anything that you're not comfortable with. And there's no question that my husband, David, is far more private than I am. And I think he was understandably a little concerned that the children might be stigmatized by what I write. Andrew. I think was thrilled thinking he'd be famous, but also a little concerned about some of the things his impulsivity has driven him to do and that readers might think less of him as a result. And my daughter, who has not disclosed to her employer, knows that there's a major risk of them finding out and is fine with it. She actually is more than fine with it. And so they all read the first draft and then gave me suggestions and changes. I'm comfortable with this. How about that? You forgot about this. Take this out. And at the end of the day, I've kept my promise. I haven't published one word that they didn't want me to publish because family comes first. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's sort of a, it's a balancing act here with even with the podcast, you know. Um, I try not to talk about my son at all because he's not comfortable with that. Yes. Uh, and I respect that. This is his life, you know. It's, it's not my story to tell in that sense. So, uh, But as parents, we really have our own story to tell. And we really have our own emotions and all of the expectations that we have when we have kids. They just are not going to ever necessarily come to fruition the way we had imagined. How do you suggest parents deal with the sort of adjustment? in those expectations or those feelings maybe of disappointment that, you know, things are not gonna be the way they thought they were. 
That's ex- and I write about this, Dawn. I mean, this is one of my insights. Of course, this is lifelong. I think the first thing parents have to realize is that you don't just fix things when you you know you find the right psychiatrist, the right psychologist, the right school. Okay, you can relax. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Oh, so many years wasted thinking that that was if I could just find the right whatever. That's exactly right. And I do say in the book, you know, these autism and related disorders affect every family member. It's not just for the autistic individual. And it's okay to grieve and mourn. I can't tell you how many times, and I'm not religious, that I've gone to church and prayed. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to disappear or how I've looked at myself in the mirror and said, why me, why us? But what I did learn years ago, and I keep reminding myself, is that you've got to accept and actually embrace the fact that your life is not going to be as planned for or hoped for in order to move forward. And once you do that, it's much easier to navigate the journey. I do think everyone needs to understand there's very little relaxation for caregivers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm always on guard. And as I write in the book, During the good times, I try to enjoy them as much as I can because I know they're not going to last. But equally, during the bad times, I remind myself that they're going to not last and they're going to lift and I'll come out of it. It's an endless roller coaster, which is, again, why you see my publisher put a roller coaster (laughs) as a graphic on the cover page there on the title page. Well, a roller coaster really is a great analogy because as soon as you feel like you're coasting, you know, you better enjoy that coast because, you know, it's something that's going to happen. And and I think, Dawn, this touches every aspect of our lives. So our interactions with our children... You know, there are days that you're so proud um, and so happy. My, My son has had a wonderful job for the last four and a half years with one of Canada's leading telecommunications companies, Rogers Communications, and there's secrets to that success, but he's so proud of it, and they value him so much. And my daughter is a child and youth counselor working with young autistic children, and I know that it's her own lived experiences, and her deep intrinsic knowledge of her brother that have made her so valued. Absolutely. And I'm so proud of them. They're extraordinary. But there are terrible, horrific times, too, as you know, and we have to learn from them and move forward. So that's with our children, with our partners, our spouses. It's so easy to lash out at the person when you're under stress who's closest to you. We all do it. Yeah, I don't know the statistics of uh, divorce in parents of autistic children, but I can imagine it's quite high. Well, there's actually very controversial. There's no real answer to that. But we do know that the stresses and strains are debilitating. I don't know about you, Don, but I've talked to a number of parents, and I've heard them blame each other, undermine each other, accuse one another, you're not interested, it's your fault. They even argue about where the autism or disorders come from, and who cares? It doesn't matter. What matters is that you act together as a unit. Because your children know when you don't, they have that built-in antenna. Yes, they do. So you have have your uh, 
parents, your spouses and your partners that way. Then you have family. <laughs> and certain family members are wonderful and understanding and try to help in the best way they can. And yet we all have other family members who are critical, judgmental, and to me, even worse, they think they know all the answers. And you have to learn how to limit your engagement or navigate with them. And even my children who are now grown have had to do that. Yeah. You know, and I've worked with them as their therapists have to say, smile, try to change the topic, leave the room, take a break. Whatever you do, don't get embroiled in those discussions. They don't know. And it's a, it's not a win-win. It's a lose-lose. So you do that. And I tell the story about my mother who un really was extremely understanding and my closest friend in the world. And at one point, she even turned to me and said, Jan, if you were just a stricter parent, Ainsley's unruly behavior would disappear. She thought she was being lazy and ill-mannered. So even at that level where I thought the closest person to me in the world would understand, she didn't. Yeah. Now, she came to understand and felt horrible and apologized, but we still go through this. Uh, I had another relative, Andrew had been having very frightening screaming rages, which are commonly associated with Tourette syndrome called emotional overload. And after nine months of having these frightening rages almost every day, I was on the floor exhausted. I found a new pediatrician, developmental pediatrician, who prescribed a very powerful antipsychotic that stopped the rages in their tracks. And I mean in their tracks. It was shocking. It was wonderful, shocking. But Andrew started gaining three pounds a week on this medication, and this continued for six weeks. In our case, it stopped at that point. I know other kids who've gained far more. But for us, it's been a lifesaver. But with the weight gain, this relative was having dinner with us one night and took me aside and said, you know, you really don't want a fat child. And I thought, You've got to be kidding. What's the difference between a life-saving medication and gaining weight? Let's be serious. So that happens with family. But I want to say embrace the support you get from your family. Most family members really are trying their best and want to do the right thing. And embrace every win that way. There are many. Uh, certainly in my family and in my husband's family, we've had aunts and uncles and cousins who have taken the children for weekends and given us some respite, who have tried to, you know, just be kind. And sometimes, as you know, Dawn, it's just a quiet, sympathetic ear listening. Oh, yeah. And other times it's finding humor. It's all kinds of things. And then, of course, you have family. I'm sorry, friends. <laughs> and there are a number of friends who are great. And there are others that will distance themselves. And I think it's out of fear, misunderstandings, and stigma. They're just not educated and they're ignorant about well, mental really. health and neurodiversity. Is, I think it's true for humans in general. You just don't right. know what you don't know. Right. And it's upsetting. It is but, upsetting. It's hard. But what you learn as a parent of a neurodivergent child is shed them. They don't matter. You just have the emotional energy and reserves for those who truly support you, and they're there. That's the great news. You just, again, it's those common themes of perseverance, determination, will to succeed. And you can do it. Anyone can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's important to figure out where you're putting your energy and you know, yes. putting your energy into friends and family who are not 
going to get it. Like that's just, it's a waste of your energy. It really is. Yeah. I, I've been fascinated here in Canada. I don't know if you have it in the U.S., but we have a movement now to move away from terminology autism spectrum disorder and just use autism. And the reason for that is that we want to use strength-based language to reflect the fact that differences in brain functioning are just that, differences, not deficits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that shines a whole new light on autism. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is a big movement of people with autism claiming it, right? Like right. claiming it as a difference, but also for all of the strength it brings. Because, gosh, you know, the, the ways their brain functions sometimes, it's just so... Right mind-blowing to me yeah I mean honestly I you know I'm well educated I have a master's degree I've learned a lot of things along the way in life but the things my son teaches me it's just like you know it's crazy it's made me a much better human actually yeah sometimes I get into trouble though because oh. I don't know about your son my son remembers every everything. single word I say everything and, and it can come back to home. and then you have the concrete thinking so that everything that i say if it doesn't come to fruition is a lie so. i have i have a very funny story about andrew's concrete thinking uh, when he turned 18 we were looking you know he outgrew his pediatrician and so we were looking for new doctors and i had gotten a recommendation for uh, a doctor and he and i went to meet him together and this doctor was trying to engage with Andrew and, you know, develop a relationship. And so he turned to Andrew and said, Andrew, tell me about your mom. And I was sitting right there. And Andrew puffed himself up and said, oh, my mom's very important. And uh, the doctor said, oh, she's a grand fromage. And Andrew said, well, what does that mean? And he said, oh, in French, it means a big cheese. And Andrew said, I don't like cheese. I said, thank you, doctor. And we got up and left. <laughs> Clearly not the right doctor, A, to speak French, and B, to give an idiom, a metaphor. You know, just doesn't work with these kids. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. So uh, it, that's a big problem, finding a pediatrician who gets it, or a doctor, rather, mm -hmm. when your kids are older. It's hard. Yeah, you really have to work hard. It, again, it's that perseverance. So when the kids were smaller, they were partially diagnosed. Andrew at first was diagnosed with just obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD, and Ainsley with ADHD and anxiety, nothing else. But Sick Kids Hospital in downtown Toronto, which is a world-class hospital, said, after about a year, you need to go to the U.S. The population is, what, 10 times bigger? They see 10 times more kids with similar profiles. So I really did a lot of research. Uh, wanted to stay east of the Mississippi to be near Toronto and kept hearing Dr. Joseph Biederman's name at Massachusetts General Hospital. And we were fortunate. We only had to wait five months. I know families that wait far, far longer. But that's when Andrew was nine at the time and Ainsley was seven, they were fully diagnosed. At the time, it, for Andrew, it was not autism. It was pervasive developmental delay, ah, PDD, which PDD. has since been, since been rolled into autism under the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5. Yeah, finding a diagnosis is, uh, even today, it's a, a difficult task because a lot of providers really don't understand the criteria and how they apply um, but uh, back then, it was like, 
the Wild West when it came to autism. Yes, yes. And even today, there are many general psychologists who can deal very capably with straightforward ADHD or anxiety. But once you get into co-occurring diagnoses or the more esoteric, for lack of a better word, um, challenges, you really need to find specialists who are qualified and trained. So for autism, it's also often ABA or social skills training, depending on where someone is and on the spectrum. For OCD, it's often exposure and response prevention. It's often cognitive behavioral therapy for ADHD and anxiety and CBIT, Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks with Tourette. You know, it goes on, and they're each different. Right. So you want to find specialists and insist on that. Mm, that's a very good tip to sort of, because like you said, comorbid diagnoses, diagnoses that come in clumps. You don't have just autism. You have a whole bunch of diagnoses. You do need special treatment for each one of those. I think, too, when you bring a patient, you bring your child to a specialist, and you say, hey, they have A, B, C, and D, that scares a lot of clinicians because they really mm. don't have the ability to work with multiple diagnoses. So to seek out specialty care for each issue is a very good tip. Tell me other tips in your book. I'm going to have to read it for sure, but I would love you to tell me a little bit more about what's in it. Sure, sure. Uh, I think one of the most important tips that I always talk about is related to partnerships. Because partnerships cross all facets of your child's life, whether they're young or adults. So, for example, in healthcare, to this day, I make sure that the children's psychiatrists and psychologists communicate with one another so they can adjust their approaches, whether it's medications from the psychiatric side or the therapeutic approach from the psychological side. The schools. I wouldn't have kept either child at their schools unless they worked in partnership with us. Now, let me back up. We started in the public school system, but even the special education classes could not accommodate their needs. So back to research I went, and that research that we've talked about a little bit is another tip that I'll expand upon. But it was very important to find schools willing to work in partnership with us. And I found two different schools that suited each child. Andrew's school had four ch children in a class, extremely structured and caring. Every night, notes came home about his day, and every morning, I returned them. So we were in constant communication, and it was teamwork. Ainsley's school, Ainsley actually started in a private school in the regular classroom. But then shortly thereafter transitioned into their, what they call small classes, special education classes. And every month at that school, we held group meetings with the principal, with all her teachers, with her external psychologist, and with us, so that we could adjust course. Andrew was rule-bound. Ainsley was totally out of control and sent to the principal's office daily so that it was important, those group meetings were really important. Didn't always work, but she was able to stay in school. And when it came to high school, um, we sent both children to Eagle Hill School in Massachusetts. It's a wonderful private, independent boarding and day school for kids with ADHD and learning disabilities. They initially took Andrew as a bit of an experiment, 
because of the complexity and his comorbidities and co-occurring conditions, but he thrived there. They loved him. And Ainsley followed two years later exactly the same. And again, what did we find? Multimodal instruction, lots of caring and structure and constant communication. And then as your children become adults, there are a whole new set of challenges, but in employment, that partnership is equally critical. This means that either the autistic employee, or if they need a legal guardian and their caregiver, so it depends on their functioning levels, have to advocate, but also the employer has to meet them halfway and be inclusive, understanding, and accommodating. And there are lots of ways to do that. Um, and let me contrast, if I may, Andrew's previous and his current employers. Andrew first worked with a major retailer as a cashier. And I thought, how is he going to do this? He can't make change. But he never had a problem because people helped him. Customers helped him. He was never ripped off. And it was great. And in fact, one day, I snuck in to see how he was doing. And there were four customers on his line and three other cashiers sat empty. I heard management try to move them over to the empty cashiers. None of them would. And the reason is that he engaged with them. He's a hugger. So he even hugged a number of them. He knew their kids' names. He interacted with them. And they love, you know, he made their days joyous. Wow. But several years in, new management came in. And Andrew drools sometimes. He has, can have food crusted on his mouth. He has a major speech impediment. And he looks disabled if you know that some things are not like neurotypical people. Mm -hmm. And they shoved him in the back without any explanation and told him to stock shelves. They didn't want him interacting. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew what was going on fairly sure. quickly. It was obvious, and I took care of it immediately. Andrew's next employer really meant well, but it was a huge bureaucracy. They wanted to do the right thing. They were not capable of engaging with me in a meaningful way. Andrew is not capable of advocating at that level for himself. And so they treated him like a child. Mm. They gave him one hour of work every morning, and it was pretty boring work, which, Don, as you know, is not good for a brain with ADHD. <laughs> he got himself into some trouble sometimes, but more than that, they then told him to go watch TV. Thought he'd be happy watching TV for the rest of the day. Really? Wow. But his current employer, I mentioned Rogers Communications earlier, has been wonderful. So before Andrew started, we held an in-service education session with them. And not only with his managers and human resources, resources but uh, Rogers has a well-being department. And we described together Andrew's profile, including his strengths and his challenges, largely impulsivity and anxiety in the workplace, and how they could maximize his success. And since that day, and that was before he started, They've really been great partners. They've listened to my recommendations and Andrew's. They've shared their thinking with us. They've brought in a job coach for both Rogers and Andrew, not only to help integrate him, but to this day, monthly, they meet with both Rogers and Andrew. Uh, Andrew has difficulty, like so many of our children do, with change and transitions between activities. So they've set his work hours the same every day while the rest of his team works on shifts. They give him a special mentor or someone to sit with him whenever there's a large group meeting um, so that, for example, 
they need to make sure he understands what's being said because he often will say he does, but he really doesn't. And recently, after on his four-year anniversary, they contacted me and said, you know, he's been here four years. He's doing really well. We should think about career advancement. And I said, no, please don't. <laughs> that will raise his anxiety through the roof. What I'd like you to focus on is career enhancement. And that's exactly what they've done. They uh, sent him on a three-day course, and his boss actually went and sat with him. And when it became apparent after a day and a half that the material was far too difficult for him, they stopped it. No repercussions, and they actually gave him kudos for trying. They now have him involved, and have from the beginning to be fair, uh, in their inclusion and diversity activities. He was just on a major panel representing Rogers wow. at a Lime Connect recruitment event for individuals with disabilities, both physical and mental, this week. And he just loves it. Wow. I wonder if your children understand what an amazing mother you are. Oh, you know what? Thank you. I mean, you, I can just see that, that like, you you know, they say the, the mama bear or, or whatever. And, <laughs> like, you just embody that. But anyone can, and that's really the message. You know, I really want to inspire and empower people. It doesn't matter, and these insights don't matter if you're married or single, if you have no money, or if you're very comfortable. They cross race, religions, cultures, ethnicities, gender orientations. You know, it doesn't matter. It's, again, that perseverance and will to succeed. You can do it, and anyone can. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. I'm so, it's been like amazing to talk to you. I think that you are, you know, the difference that you've made in the world thus far is huge and impressive and, and wonderful. Well, thank you, Dawn. I really appreciate it. And I would love it if readers would buy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble in Canada, also Indigo and Caversham. Hold on tight, A Parent's Journey, Raising Children with Mental Illness. Uh, and uh, let me know what you think, if it resonates. You can also find my newsletter, which is quarterly, through my website. Wonderful. At janstewartauthor.com. Feel free to reach out to me as well uh, there, and you'll see the contact information. And I post on Instagram and Facebook every day about neurodiversity at janstewartauthor. Oh, that's wonderful. We're going to have to all follow you. And I will, uh, to the audience, I will put links to all that stuff on the show notes. So definitely check that out. And uh, the book, it sounds phenomenal. I hope that everybody has an opportunity to read it. So thank you so thank much. You, thank you for writing, Jan. And thank you for all you do. And thank you for hanging out with me today. It was delightful. Thank you. Thank you.